Morena. How are you? How are you going? My name's Lachlan, one of the pastors here at Auckland EV. It's been Māori Language Week this week. I don't know if you've been enjoying that. It's one of the things that's really interesting about our city, though, in Auckland, yeah? The diversity that is in this place uh, means that you can get all sorts of good food, which I like food. That's a wonderful thing about a city. Uh, I love as well that within our church, we see lots of elements of that diversity, lots of cultures coming together, people from different backgrounds, different countries, different cultures. It's a wonderful part of living in Auckland. One of the things it does mean is that within our city, there are all sorts of people worshipping different gods in all sorts of different ways. Just up the road from here, I drive past it every Sunday morning, there's a big Hindu temple. You seen that one? We've got people worshipping as Buddhists, as Muslims, as Sikhs, Taoists, Baha'i. Then there's the Maori spirituality with its collection of gods, Maui, the Father Sky, the Earth Mother. There's even that new temple that's been finished up in Newmarket. I don't know if you've seen it. It's pretty fancy. It's called Westfield. (laughs) You can go there to worship the idealized human, the ideal clothes, the ideal beauty, the ideal toys. In a city that's full of all sorts of different gods, people worshiping in all sorts of different ways. It was pretty similar in Isaiah's time. There's a bit of a timeline up on screen for you to Get your head back into the timeline of Isaiah. If you haven't been with us before, this will help you get up to speed with where we're at in history. Uh, The prophet Isaiah was speaking as God's mouthpiece back from the year 740 BC when Uzziah died through till about 700 BC, just after Assyria had besieged Jerusalem. Uh, That was the time frame of Isaiah's uh, preaching. And during that time, Israel was a split kingdom. It had broken into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And the big superpower during Isaiah's preaching time was called Assyria. They were up there in the north. 722, they'd come down, they'd wiped out the northern kingdom. Uh, They'd besieged Jerusalem in 701. Now, Assyria, and and then later on, the nation of Babylon, uh, that that happened a bit later after Isaiah's time. That was the next superpower to, to rise up. These were nations that had their own gods. Lots of different gods. Other nations around as well, Edom, Moab, Ammon, all of them had different gods. Baal, Asherah, Molech, Marduk, those are some of the names of the gods of those nations. So Isaiah's time is a bit of a similar context to the way we find uh, Auckland today. There's a buffet of God options to pick from. As we live in Auckland, I I think I'm hearing culture around us rightly uh, in saying that all religious options are equally valid. That's the sense I get of what dominant Auckland culture wants to say is true. Just pick the God that you like best, pick the way of worship that you like best, and as long as you're genuine in it, then you're going to be okay. And perhaps that's your view as you come here this morning, that all religious options are valid, uh, just different perspectives on one and the same God. That's an attractive opinion, right? It, It means that in the end, everyone's going to be okay. If you can just pick the God that you like, then everyone will be okay in the end. But I trust that you recognise truth isn't determined by what is attractive to us. We don't determine truth just by thinking about what we like to be the case. And this morning as we come to Isaiah, Yahweh, the God of Israel, he introduces himself. And he leaves us in no doubt what we should think about other gods. The main message of this morning is very simple, it's very clear. You'll see it there in Isaiah 45 verse 21. Isaiah 45, verse 21. There is no other God but me, a righteous God and Saviour. There is no one except me. 
Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. So the main message of Isaiah this morning is this. Yahweh alone is God, and there is no other. When I talk about Yahweh there, that's the personal name for the God of the Bible. Uh, The word God, it's a title. It's like calling someone Sir or Dame. It's just a title that expresses one who has divine power. But Yahweh, Yahweh is the personal name by which the true and living God introduced himself to Moses back in Exodus when he formed Israel as a nation, bringing them out of the land of Egypt where they'd been in slavery. Uh, In your English Bible there, you might see times when the word Lord is all in capital letters. See that? That, That's just them putting that in for the word Yahweh. Uh, The Jewish people didn't like to say God's personal name. They thought it was too holy for them to speak. So they replaced it with a different word, Adonai, which means Lord. Uh, but that's what the English translations are doing. The personal name of God is Yahweh. That's who we're talking about this morning. And the truth to walk away with this morning, very simple, we'll flesh it out along the way, but it's very simple. Yahweh alone is God, there is no other. Through this section of Isaiah, Yahweh gives us three pieces of evidence to bolster his claim for exclusivity. If you're taking notes in your outline, there are three different points here. The first one will take up about the whole first page. It's that Yahweh is the creator. And then we'll see the second two, they'll be about half a page each, that Yahweh is the sovereign ruler and that Yahweh is the only saviour. But the first piece of evidence that Yahweh points us to is his role as creator. Come back to Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to pick it up at verse 12. If you were here last week, you might remember me saying all these themes from chapter 40 to 55, it's really a few themes that get repeated along the way. So again this week, we're going to be covering that section looking at Yahweh's exclusivity. Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or who has marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure, or weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills on the scales? Who has directed the spirit of Yahweh? Or who gave him counsel? Who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? How many rhetorical questions can you ask in a row? (laughs) You feel the impact of those questions though, yeah? Yahweh is massive. He's the one who cupped his hands together to measure out the amount of water to put on the earth. He, He uses the span of his hand to measure the distance of light years between stars. Now, this is imagery. God doesn't actually have hands here, but this is using personification to help us feel the magnitude of God as creator. And it's making the point that Yahweh did this all on his own. The whole universe was created by him solo. There's no one else there with him giving him advice. I don't know if you're like that person when someone's setting up a bit of Ikea furniture or a bit of set furniture, you're like oh, you should put this here. Maybe God didn't have anyone trying to give him advice. No backseat drivers helping him along the way. No one taught God anything. There is no one who has anything to teach him. This is why it's so offensive to God if we worship an idol. Have a look at verse 18. With whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for comparison with him? An idol? Something that a smelter casts and a metal worker plates with gold and makes silver chains for? 
God's question is simple. Are you really going to say that I, the Creator, am like some statue that you made? You can see how that's offensive to God. Any God that can be represented by an idol is no God at all. It's something that you've made, it's not something that has made you. When we get to chapter 44, we're not going to turn there because it's a longer section, but God kind of unpacks the process that goes into making an idol. Uh, The person making an idol goes out to the wood and chops down a tree. Here's one I prepared earlier. Got myself a little tree. Uh, He breaks off some of it. Oh, this this one's a bit green. (laughs) Needs a bit more time to break. We can do this. There we go. Break off some of it, and I'm going to use this to build a fire. And then I'm going to cook my steak over that and have have some dinner. And then I'm going to take the rest of it. I'm going to tweak it. See if that one... Yeah, there we go. That's a bit of a tweak. A bit more tweaking there. And here's my God. I'm going to bow down to this. I'm going to pray to this. It's the same tree that I used to just cook dinner on. The same tree warming me up. You know, I'm going to say that this is God. How foolish that is. How foolish to worship something that you make rather than the God who made you, Yahweh, the God who created everything. I'm aware that some of you have grown up with idols around the family home, statues that your family would make offerings to, statues that you might pray to. Becoming a Christian means forsaking those idols, recognising that they are nothing. That's going to be offensive to your family, most likely, and you may already have experienced the friction of refusing to bow down or make an offering to such an idol. God would encourage you this morning in Isaiah to persevere in that, even at the tough times of funerals or moments of celebration where all of your family is calling and pressuring you to get involved. Worship the true God, Yahweh. Don't get involved with idolatry. Others of us as Christians haven't grown up with statues around the house. We we don't see those kind of idols, but we do need to be warned still of worshipping the true God by means of images or statues. You can go to the local Christian store and pick up all sorts of different images and objects that might be kind of advertised as helping or assisting you in your worship of God. But here this morning, that bowing down to a cross, bowing down to a statue of Jesus or the Virgin Mary, it might seem like a small thing, but it deeply offends God. Having a picture of Jesus in your home that you pray to, you might think it's just helping you to pray, but no, it it offends God. It offends God because it misrepresents Him. It, It lessens Him, it makes Him like a created thing, rather than respecting Him as the Creator. Has it ever struck you that we have no idea what Jesus looked like? All sorts of things we know about Jesus from the Bible, all sorts of description of him, what he did, what he taught, but we have no idea whether he was short or tall, whether he was skinny or chubby or built, we don't know. We don't know those things because it doesn't matter. We don't relate to God by seeing his form, but by hearing his voice. That's what God taught Israel from the very first. You don't build a statue, you don't make an image of Him, because when you met God, you didn't see a form, you heard His voice. Idolatry, the use of images or statues, it's a shift away from hearing God to seeing God. It's a shift from relating to God by faith 
to relating to God by sight. And all the way through, from beginning to end, God has been teaching us that we relate to Him by hearing and believing. By hearing His Word, having faith and obeying. We don't relate to God by sight. Don't get caught up in idolatry. At the same time, don't get caught up in worshipping parts of creation rather than Yahweh, the Creator. It might not be a statue that you worship, it might be some other part of creation. Uh, Have a look a bit further down in Isaiah 40, verse 25. Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? asks the Holy One. Look up and see. Who created these? He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name. Because of His great power and strength, not one of them is missing. There's a picture of some stars up there on screen. Uh, Who can name a star for me this morning? Does anyone know the name of a star? Yeah, Jason, what do you got? Alpha Centauri. Anyone got like five stars? You know, five stars? Anyone know the name of a hundred stars? No, we, we don't know their names. Uh, they estimate that the number of stars in the observable universe is one billion trillion. I don't know how to make sense of that number. That's a big number. That's 10 to the power of 21. One followed by 21 zeros. That's a lot of stars. And we're just guessing at that number. But you know who's not guessing how many stars there are? Yahweh. Because he created them all. He knows them all by name. He knows exactly how many there are. And he calls them into their position. And yet some people worship the stars as gods. People will bow down to the sun or to the moon. Or going away from the heavens, just the earth, people will pray to rivers or to mountains or to animals. These are all created things. God is telling us and warning us this morning that we should not substitute the glory of the immortal God for images of mortal men or birds or animals. We should not worship created things rather than the Creator. That offends Yahweh. As Creator, Yahweh is God alone. There is no other. There is no Rangi, there is no Papa. Yahweh is one God, one Creator. Now, apart from correcting our worship, it's very humbling to think of God as Creator in all His strength and power. I don't know if this happens for you, but so often I find myself minimizing God in my thinking. I don't make a statue of Him, but I create a mental image that is smaller than reality. I picture God and I think, well, He's just a little bit more impressive than me. He's just a little bit wiser, or sometimes even a little bit less wise than I am. I think that I'm close enough to God that I can question Him, that I can negotiate with Him. But that's not reality. I need to be corrected by God's Word this morning, perhaps you do as well. Isaiah 45 verse 9 highlights the foolishness of thinking bigger of ourselves than we are. Isaiah 45 verse 9, Woe to the one who argues with his Maker, one clay pot among many. Does clay say to the one forming it, what are you making? Does your work say, he has no hands? 
when you put a bit of clay on the spinning wheel, you don't then spend the next half hour negotiating with it about what you're going to do. You don't even think to explain your plans to the clay. It's clay. God is saying to us this morning, you are just a bit of clay. God has fashioned you for His good purposes. Seeing God as Creator helps us think rightly of ourselves. Uh, There's a picture up there of the earth. If there's any flat earthers amongst us, you can critique me and correct me later. I think this is a picture of our earth. This is where all of our lives are lived out. That's home for us. Now, there's a second picture up there. Uh, Can you see the earth there? This photo was taken by Voyager 1, 1990, six billion kilometres away from the Earth. There's a little blue circle there. That's, that blue circle isn't the Earth. That's highlighting where the little dot of the Earth is. There's a tiny little dot in that beam of orange light. That's home. That's us. A little speck of dust suspended in a sunbeam. In a universe that Yahweh fills and holds in His hands, we are tiny. We are so small. Compared to the God, the Creator who stretched out the heavens, compared to Yahweh, we are like grasshoppers. We're a speck of dust on the scales. For me, one of the sins that I struggle with time and time again is pride. It rears its ugly head. It has to be fought back. Pride in the workplace as you look down on colleagues when they make mistakes, even push them down so that you feel validated. Pride at university where you make sure everyone knows how much you know and how good your marks are. Pride in your family, within church, on your social media profiles. Or even that pride before God where we think we know better than Him, that He exists through our bidding. When you start to think more highly of yourself than you ought to, come back to this section of Isaiah. Read it straight through from 40 to 55. Remember God. Dwell on Him. Hear of the one who is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He is the potter. He is the potter. He has made you. He has shaped you. He has fashioned you. You are just clay. That's the first bit of evidence that Yahweh pulls out to help us see that He alone is God. He alone is the Creator. But secondly, He alone is the sovereign ruler over all the earth. That's His second piece of evidence for exclusivity. He alone is in control. Come to Isaiah 46, pick it up at verse 9. Remember what happened long ago, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. I call a bird of prey from the east, a man for my purpose from a far country. Yes, I have spoken, so I will also bring it about. I have planned it, I will also do it. Yahweh is the sovereign ruler. What He wants is what happens. No one can stop His plan. No idol, no other god, no human. What He plans, He will do. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah have been showing us this reality. Remember that structure of Isaiah, chapter 1 to 39, have been telling us all about past events. 
that God had spoken about and then they happened. So God came and, and told Ahaz, King Ahaz of the southern kingdom of Judah, that if you don't trust me, Assyria is going to come down and wipe out most of the southern kingdom. And that happened. And God said to King Hezekiah, the king of Assyria isn't going to enter Jerusalem. He's not even going to fire an arrow into Jerusalem. And then remember what happened? God wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night and the king of Assyria went home where he was killed. So chapters 1 to 39 have been pointing out to us the reality that what God says is what will happen. He accomplishes his will. And that builds us up to chapter 40 where Yahweh is now going to announce his plans for the future. Plans that Jerusalem will be destroyed by Babylon and go into exile there. And then they'll return to the land with the help of a Persian king named Cyrus. God's speaking about events here that are 110, 160 years in the future. He's announcing the exile before it happens. He's announcing the return before Cyrus has even been born. He's naming him by name. This is the God who can declare the future because he's the one bringing it about. This is the God who moves kings and emperors around the earth for his purposes. That language of Isaiah 46, he calls them like a bird. He whistles for them like a dog to come. So he can tell the future with clarity, with certainty, in a way that no other God can, no idol can, because the future is completely within his control. If we come back a little bit to Isaiah 45 and have a look at verse 7, it fills out this theme a little bit more. Isaiah 45, verse 7. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am Yahweh, who does all these things. This is a powerful truth. Yahweh is a powerful God, both light and darkness. Success and disaster come from His hand. Everything that happens in the world is God's will, God's plan. That might be hard to swallow at first, but it's actually a great comfort when you compare it to the alternative options. So imagine if we lived in a world where there were many gods, each controlling different aspects of the world. That's the world of the Taiwanese that we were hearing Sam talk about praying to all these different spiritual beings. It's the world of the old Greeks and the Norse, a world that's populated by spiritual powers, often in conflict with one another. And so when something bad happens, when there's a disaster, you have to work hard to figure out which God it is that you've offended. Which God is it that's doing this to you? It could be one of a hundred. And you have to try to appease that God, but in doing so, you're probably going to annoy another God over here because... They were kind of happy with you in the first place, but now that you're pleasing this God, they're annoyed with you. It's a nightmare. Living in a world where there's many, many gods, terrible place to live. You just can't win. Or imagine, alternatively, we were in a world where there was no God, where everything is just an accident. In that world, when there's a disaster, well, it has no meaning, has no purpose, we have no hope. Neither of those alternatives is great, and, and thankfully we don't live in either of those worlds. We live in the world created by Yahweh, over which Yahweh is sovereign, working out His good plans and purposes. So when disaster strikes, we haven't fallen into the hands of some other power. 
God is still in control. In the midst of tragedy, in the midst of darkness, something that God is bringing about for his plan. And that allows us to grieve with hope. I'm sure there are people in the room today who just this week, perhaps even just this morning, you've been questioning why some tragedy has happened. Why some dark stage of life has come for you or for someone that you love. God's telling us here this morning that in that tragedy, in that darkness, He is doing something. I can't tell you what exactly, and and that's where the real struggle is. We want to know the why, we want to know how long it's going to go for, we want to know what God's working about in this tragedy. He doesn't tell us those things, but He does tell us that He's still in control. So trust Him. He's got it covered. God's got it covered. Our God is so big, yeah? Yahweh alone is creator. Yahweh alone is sovereign ruler. And thirdly, Yahweh alone is saviour. There's one saviour, there is no other. Yahweh alone is saviour. Come to Isaiah 46, pick it up at verse 1. Bell crouches, Nebo cowers, idols depicting them are consigned to beasts and cattle, The images you carry are loaded as a burden for the weary animal. The gods cower, they crouch together. They're not able to rescue the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. So Bel here was the chief god of Babylon. He went by the name uh, Marduk as well. Uh, Nebo or Nabu, that was one of Bel's sons. He was the god of writing and the god of vegetables. Guess you need a god for that. Uh, These were gods that people worshipped with statues, with idols. And God's here again highlighting the foolishness of idols. We've already seen the foolishness of idols as things that you make and then worship. Here God highlights uh, another side to that foolishness, pointing out that these idols can't save anyone. Instead, they need to be rescued. See the language that's going on here? These gods are cowering and crouching. Their idols, these gods, are being put on the back of cattle. They're becoming burdens for weary animals. God's saying, what kind of God do you have to carry? You don't want a God that you have to carry. You want a God who carries you. Have a look down to verse 7. Again, speaking of these Babylonians and their idol worship. Isaiah 46, verse 7. They lift it to their shoulder and bear it along. They set it in its place and there it stands. It does not budge from its place. They cry out to it, but it doesn't answer. It saves no one from his trouble. You have to carry an idol, and then once you've got to your destination, you put it there, and that's it. Can't move. Just stays there. There's a photo of that Hindu temple from down the road. This is the inside of it. Can you see the statues there lined up along the back? How did they get there? Well, someone carried them in, put them in their place, and they haven't moved since. And if one day that temple has to move, then someone's going to pick up those gods, put them in the trunk of the car, and drive them somewhere. And yet people pray to these statues. They bow down to these statues. It's nonsensical. It's sad. And in contrast to that kind of God, Yahweh, the true God, does not need to be carried. He carries His people. Have a look at 46 verse 3. Isaiah 46 verse 3. 
Listen to me, house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been sustained from the womb, carried along since birth. I will be the same until your old age. I will bear you up when you turn grey. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will bear and rescue you. Quite the contrast, isn't it? Instead of a God that you have to carry, we worship a God who carries us. Even into our old age. It's beautiful, isn't it? There's some of you here that are heading towards that stage of life. The hairs have already turned grey. I like the way Matthew Henry summarises the comfort of this verse. He says, When compassed about with infirmities, and perhaps those around begin to grow weary of you, Yet I am he that I have promised to be, he that you would have me to be. I will bear you up, carry you on in your way, and carry you home at last. This is a God who saves us from first to last. And knowing that God is our saviour makes his power and sovereignty such a comfort. This is why it's a good thing that he is the one in control of the universe. Listen to Isaiah 41 verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. God wants to humble us by showing us his power and his sovereignty, but he wants to comfort us as well. When Yahweh is your God, then in the midst of disaster, you can still have hope. He is with you. He will help you. This is our God. This is the true and living God. His name is Yahweh. He's the creator, the sovereign ruler, and the saviour. Who are you going to compare him to? A man-made statue that can't talk? A nice iPhone in your pocket? Something that you have to carry? Will, Will you compare God to yourself? No. Yahweh is incomparable. There is none like him. It blows my mind that he became human. That's crazy, yeah? The, the creator who cupped the waters of the earth in his hands and weighed the mountains on a scale, he became one of those specks of dust that we call human. It's crazy. The sovereign ruler of all history, the everlasting God, the, the first and the last, stepped into human history and died. So we've been seeing the message of Isaiah, but as we carry this story through into the New Testament, we meet Jesus. He is Yahweh, the incomparable God clothed in human flesh. The incomparable God who has somehow taken humanity into his person. Jesus is Yahweh. Mind-blowing. An old song phrased it beautifully, hands that flung stars into space, to cruel nails surrendered. This is our God, the servant king. It's mind-boggling. What does it mean for us in bicultural and multicultural Auckland? It means that as much as we might want to, we can't say that all religious options are equally valid. We can't do it. It's false. 
we have to say that all religious options are wrong, except one. Yahweh alone is God, there is no other. Those who are worshipping other gods, whether it be Allah or Vishnu or themselves, they're not building bridges closer to the true God. They're not somehow getting closer and reaching out to God in a genuine faith. No, no, they're offending God. They're adding to their sin. There are a number of places in the New Testament where these themes of Isaiah land. You can have a look this afternoon at Romans 9 or Philippians 2. Uh, Romans 9, God will speak of his sovereignty. Uh, Philippians 2 will show you that Jesus is Yahweh. But I think the verse to close on is the one from Acts. Very short and simple and helping us to grapple with this exclusivity that we often struggle with in a multicultural city. Acts 4, verse 11 to 12. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. If you want eternal life, if you want to be connected to the deep reality of the universe, then you need to come to Jesus and only to Jesus. He is the awesome God, the creator, the sovereign ruler, the saviour. So if you have friends, family, if you yourself are worshipping some other God this morning, then know that that is not okay. That will not be okay in the end. Jesus and Jesus alone is the one worthy of our worship. Let's persist in worshipping him, getting rid of any idols in our life. And let's call others to join us in worship of the true and living God. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so big. You are beyond our comprehension that the magnitude of the universe, those one billion trillion stars, you know them by name. That's crazy. Forgive us for the times when we have not been humble, when we as the clay have tried to negotiate with you, our potter. Forgive us for the times when we think that you exist to do our bidding. Give us that right perspective of ourselves. Humble us. You are the only God, Yahweh. We praise you this morning. Thank you that in Jesus you have saved us. Thank you that in Jesus we can come to you and, and be comforted that you are with us, that you are for us. Lord, we pray for the many in our city and across our country who today are worshipping other gods. Please have mercy on them. Please open their eyes to see the, the foolishness of idolatry. Please draw them to yourself, that they might join with us in bowing the knee before Jesus and praising his name above all. In his name we pray. Amen.